Um, the passage for today is Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. It's on page 4 of the Pew Bible. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. As you can see, we have a very cheery Advent passage this morning. Uh, sets the tone slightly differently. But we will end in hope. So, just to give you a heads up. But we're continuing our series in Genesis, as you can see this morning, we'll be in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8, and, and as I said, this, is, this doesn't appear to be the most hopeful of Advent passages, but we will, we will end in hope. So let me pray for us, and we'll look at our passage. Lord, we thank you for this season, this season of Advent, where we reflect on the hope that we have in Christ, and... We pray that you would use this, this time, this morning, to, to cultivate hope in our hearts and in our lives. We want to be people of hope, and we want to be people who live by faith and not by sight. And we want to be people who are affected by the hope of the gospel and who are different and distinct because of the hope that we have in Christ. And so we pray that, that that would be true of us and that you would use this time this morning to cultivate in us a, a real and tangible hope. And because of that hope, that we would be different. Because of that hope, that we would live by faith and not by sight. Lord, I pray that for those of us who need to be comforted this morning, that you would comfort us. For those of us who need to be convicted this morning, that you would convict us. We ask that you would do what needs to be done in our lives and in our hearts to conform us into your image. Amen. Okay, well, one of, the, one of the common themes that we see in the Bible is that as Christians, we, we live, we think, and we do differently. And the reason for this is that when someone becomes a Christian... It's not simply that you become a Christian because you used to not believe something about Jesus, but now you believe something different about Jesus. But actually, becoming a Christian means that you are now a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's what we see in 2 Corinthians. 
And because you're a new creation, you are different. You live differently. You think differently. You act differently. You do differently. And this is a common theme we see through the Bible that God's people are different. They are distinct. Yet we live in this world. And in this world, this is where this distinction is clear. One of my favorite places where we see this is in John 17. In John 17, Jesus is praying for his followers and he prays for them that that the Father would give them the strength to be in this world, but not of this world. It's one of the best places where we see this tension, that we live in this world, but we're not to be of this world. We are to be different. We are to be distinct. This is a common theme that we see all through the Bible, that as Christians, we are different. And I think that this is, this is, one, or this is one of the primary points of our passage today, that as a Christian you are to be different. That's kind of the positive way to look at our passage in Genesis 6, that as a Christian, you are to be different. Uh, Another angle that we can look at this big idea is, is the angle of one of the primary ways that we are different as Christians is that we are people who live our lives by faith and not by sight. And I would also say the big idea of this passage is that when we live our lives by sight and not by faith, it brings destruction. So that's the big idea of this passage from kind of two different angles. From the positive angle, it's as a Christian, you're different. From a a warning, maybe negative angle, it's when you live your life by sight and not by faith, it brings destruction. So that's kind of the big idea of our passage. And, uh, you know, as you can probably tell already, this is one of the strangest, most unique, most confusing, difficult passages in the book of Genesis to make sense of. And so we're going to try to make sense of it together. And because there's so many questions that we probably have about these verses, I've kind of structured uh, my sermon this morning off of six questions. So I'm just going to answer these questions, and as I answer these questions, I think that big idea will become clear. And my questions, here are my six questions. First, who are the sons of God and the daughters of man? Second, what are the 120 years? Third, who are the Nephilim? Fourth, can God regret? Fifth, how are we still here today? And sixth, what does this mean for us today? So I'll read them one more time. Uh, first, who are the sons of God and the daughters of man? Second, what are the 120 years? Third, who are the Nephilim? Fourth, can God regret? Fifth, how are we still here today? And sixth, what does this mean for us today? So our first question, who are the sons of God? And I'm going to, as I go through these questions, I'll read the verses that are kind of pertinent to that question. So let me reread verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, in the history of the church, there's been three primary ways to to make sense of who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of man. One way that people have interpreted the sons of God and daughters of man is they've understood the sons of God to be angels and the daughters of man to be people. And 
functionally what happens is angels and people get together and they get married and they have babies and their babies are Nephilim, the giant, these giant Nephilim people. Uh, that's one understanding. Um, I think that that one is pr a bit problematic because Jesus tells us in, in Luke, he tells us in Luke 20 that angels don't get married. And this is kind of a, a strange response from God that he would punish mankind so severely for an action that angels took. So that's one, one theory. That one is a little problematic. Another theory is that the sons of God are, are kings or rulers who are, and, and normally kings or rulers who are oppressive or evil. You might remember Clint's sermon last week, he talked about the two lines, he talked about Lamech and, and how evil Lamech was. And so one understanding is that these sons of God are oppressive or evil rulers from the line of Lamech who took multiple wives just like Lamech did. And again, this is, this is possible, but it, does, it feels a little out of context when we think about what, what came right before chapter 6. And I say that, I, you know, it, it would seem kind of strange. There are some places where kings and rulers are called sons of God. You see this in the Psalms, but the Psalms are kind of far away from Genesis. It would seem kind of strange that the evil offspring of Lamech would be called sons of God. You know, it just seems kind of strange. They'd be identified as sons of God. So that's a possibility, but it's, it's got problems too. The third theory, and this is the theory that I hold, there's a lot of people that disagree with me on this, but the third theory is that the sons of God are the godly offspring of Seth, whose genealogy we see in chapter 5, and the daughters of man are the worldly offspring of Cain, whose, whose genealogy we see in chapter 4. The idea here is that Seth's offspring and Cain's offspring, and Clint talked about this last week, that you've got these two seeds. You've got these two lines. The line of Cain is worldly and evil. And the line of Seth is godly. And we even see this, and Clint talked about this last week, you see this particularly in, if you look at chapter 4, in Cain's, in Cain's genealogy, you see an Enoch and you see a Lamech. And you see the exact same thing in the line of Seth. You see an Enoch and you see a Lamech. And the Enoch in Cain's line, he had a city named after him. That's what he was known for. The Enoch in Seth's line was known for walking with God. The Lamech in Cain's line was known for polygamy and brutally retaliating by murdering people who offended him. The Lamech in Seth's line is known for feeling the reality of the brokenness of the world and longing for relief from sin and brokenness. And so he named his son Noah. He named his son after the relief that he longed for. So I think in chapter 6... We're seeing the culmination of these two genealogies, that they were to be distinct. That the line of Seth was to remain distinct from the line of Cain. That, that Seth's line is godly, but what happens is they intermarry. And Seth's offspring, they become just like Cain's offspring. This contextually makes the most sense. 
because it comes right after these two genealogies. So what we have here are two lines. And this one line, the line of Seth, and the godly line of Seth, it was to be distinct. But instead, they lived by sight and not by faith. And they intermarried with the evil offspring of Cain. One thing that's, that's really interesting here is if you look at some of the language that's used in verse 2, it says that the sons of God, there's, there's three really important words or phrases here. It says that the sons of God saw, the daughters of man, saw that they were attractive or that they were good, and they took. And think about those three words or three phrases. To see, it is good, and to take. Where have we seen that before? We saw that in Genesis 3. I want to look at it just to, just to point it out. Flip over to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, verse 6. In Genesis 3, verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good, so the woman saw, she saw that it was good, and we translate it in English a little differently, but it's the same phrase, it is good. When she saw that it was good, she took it. So we see here that these sons of God in chapter 6, they're living just like Eve did in this moment of temptation in chapter 3. That Eve saw, she saw that it was good and she took. And the sons of God do the same thing. They saw, they saw that they were good or attractive and they took. So the sons of God in this moment are living just like Eve. The, the godly line of Seth was to be the hope of the world. And yet here, they fall into the same sin, the same temptation of their ancestors. They were to be godly, but godliness didn't matter because they lived by sight and not by faith. And I do, I want to pause here and just point out that this, this is, I want to point out that Notice that sin is attractive. We see this in chapter 3. We see this in chapter 6. We see that sin is often attractive. This is important for us to know. There's a lot of sin in the world that is repulsive to us. But you know, the sin that's really dangerous is the sin that's attractive. And that's what happened to Eve, and that's what happened to the sons of God. They saw something that was attractive and they took it, even though they weren't supposed to. This should encourage us in our fight against sin because it helps us see that oftentimes sin will be attractive. We're not crazy for being attracted to sin. Sin in and of itself is often attractive. But just because something is attractive doesn't make it right. And that's what we see in the lives of the sons of God. So that's our first question of who are the sons of God and the daughters of man? I'd argue that the sons of God are the line of Seth, the, sons, the daughters of man are the line of Cain, and the sons of God were to be distinct. They were not to intermarry with the sons of Cain, but they lived by sight and not by faith, and so they did. That's our first question. Our second question, what are the 120 years? This is in verse 3. Then the Lord said... 
My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Now, you know, what in the world are the 120 years? Oftentimes, the 120 years are understood as, at this point in time, God is saying, I'm putting a cap on how long people can live. I will not allow people to live longer than 120 years. That's one way to, to interpret this. That's a little problematic because if we keep going, we see in the book of Genesis that some people live longer than 120 years after this statement. Another, another way to understand this that really fits with this context is that God, has, God is seeing that evil has taken over both the line of Seth and the line of Cain. And so this is a statement in which the Lord is saying, I will give, I will give the descendants of Seth 120 years to repent. And if they don't repent, then I will judge them. I think that fits a little more with the, with the context. This is not necessarily God putting a cap on how long people can live, but instead it's a window of repentance in which the Lord is saying, you have sinned against me, I will give you 120 years to turn from your sin, and if you do not turn, then there will be judgment, which we're going to find later in chapter 6. So what are the 120 years? I think the 120 years are actually a window of repentance. Third question, who are the Nephilim? Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, you know, you're like, who in the world are the Nephilim? And it doesn't really tell us. That's the thing that's so difficult about this passage. Moses kind of writes things and almost assumes that we know who he's talking about and what he's talking about, but we don't. We don't know who he's talking about and what he's talking about. But the Nephilim, this is important, the Nephilim only show up in one other place in the Bible, and they show up in Numbers 13. And in Numbers 13, this is the passage where the people of Israel are about to go into the promised land to take it. But before they go in, they decide to send in a group of spies to survey the land, kind of see what is in the land, what are the people of the land like. And they come back, and the spies are scared to go into the land. And they're scared to go into the land, and they, and they report that the people of the land, they are Nephilim. They're mighty rulers and princes and kings. And so the Nephilim show up only one other time in Numbers 13, and the people of Israel are terrified of them. They're frightened of them. They're, they're mighty rulers and warriors. And we see in verse 4 that they were mighty men of old, men of renown, and so we're not really sure, okay, who exactly were they, but it sounds like they were pretty scary people. Pretty intimidating, mighty warriors. Uh, seems pretty likely they were larger than most. So we're not all that sure beyond that. But I, it is important that the only other place they show up is in Numbers 13. And if I had more time to talk about this, I would, but Moses is being intentional in Genesis 6. And this is important for us. Moses is being intentional in Genesis 6 because he's saying the Nephilim have been in the land before. They were no concern to the Lord. The Lord judged them before. He protected his people from them before. 
he can judge them again and protect his people from them again. So I think Moses is being intentional by saying these are Nephilim. So who are the Nephilim? They are mighty warriors, rulers, kings who are scary, intimidating people. These are strange times in the land in Genesis 6. For, uh, my fourth question, can God regret? We pick this up in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Those should be weighty verses to us. We see in verse 5 that the 120 years have run its course. And after 120 years, people did not repent, but instead, after 120 years, we find that every intention of the, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So instead of people repenting and turning back to the Lord, things only got worse. And, you know, when we use the word to regret, to be sorry, oftentimes for us, when we use that word, that might indicate that I'm sorry that I did not have more foresight. I regret that I did not have the foresight to see how this would play out. You know, the idea of hindsight's twenty twenty. And so oftentimes when we use this word foresight or to regret or uh, to be sorry, implicit in that is the idea, if I, if I had known better, I would have done differently. And the word can indicate that, but I don't think that's what Moses is doing here. Moses instead is using emotive and powerful language to help us realize how heavy and weighty the sin of the offspring of Seth was to the Lord. That's what he's doing. He's just using emotive language to help us feel the weight of how drastic and dark things have gotten in Genesis 6. And even as you think about this, verse 5 Think about where we've heard something similar to this before. The Lord saw, we could say the Lord saw that his creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, the Lord saw that his creation was very good. Here, the Lord saw, what did he see? He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We, Moses is using the language he's using to help us see how backwards things have become in Genesis 6. That only a couple chapters before, God saw his creation, it was very good. Here, God is looking at the prize of his creation, man. And he says that they're only evil continually. Therefore... In verse 7, he's going to decreate the world. We've heard this language before in Genesis 1 and 2, talking about land and man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens. These were all created 
in Genesis 1. Here, they're being, in a sense, decreated. They're being wiped away from the earth. So can God regret? Not in the lack of foresight way that we regret, but Moses is just using this language to help us see how dark things have become. And this whole idea, this, this theme of people turning from the Lord and, and the Lord giving a window of repentance, and then if people do not turn back to him, then he brings judgment. I mean, this is a really common theme in the Bible. We see it here in Genesis 6. We see it in the Old Testament with the, people, with the Canaanites. We see that God gave them hundreds of years to repent, Yet they did not repent, so he sent Israel to judge them. And then this is really interesting. I want you to turn to Matthew 24 with me. But Jesus, in reflecting on this passage, he comments on what it's going to be like when he returns. So Matthew 24, look at verse 37 with me. Matthew 24, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Uh, Jesus is reflecting on the mystery of when is the Lord coming back? We don't know. When is he coming back? We don't know. But when he comes back, it will be like Genesis 6. People won't expect it, people won't know it. But in the same way that the evil were swept away in Genesis 6, he says that they will be swept away when he returns. So we see this theme all through the Bible. People turn, God gives a window of repentance, and if people do not turn back to him in repentance, he brings judgment. This is a common theme that we see, and this is the first place we really see it in Genesis 6. My, my last question in regards to this kind of the passage and making sense of the passage is why are we still here today? And you think about it, I mean, if we stop at verse 7, this is the end of the world, right? We see the creation of the world in Genesis 1 and 2, and here God says very plainly, I'm about to wipe everyone out. Sounds like the end of the world. But then we find verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the question, I'm going to leave this more so for Clint as he covers the rest of chapter 7, but why did Noah find favor? And we see, if he, if he reading that Noah was called a blameless man, a righteous man, a man who walked with God. You know, that sounds just like the good Enoch from last week when Clint talked about him, that he was godly and he walked with God. He trusted the Lord. He lived by faith, not by sight. And this will, again, this will be very apparent as Clint continues this series in Genesis, but we'll see that Noah is a foil to the sons of God. The sons of God live by sight and not by faith. But what we'll see is that Noah 
live by faith and not by sight. So, we'll, and as I said, we'll carry that forward even more as Clint takes us through Genesis, but we'll see why are we still here today? Well, we're here today because Noah found grace. We're here today because God showed mercy and grace to Noah. And Noah walked, by, Noah walked with God. Noah lived by faith and not by sight, as opposed to the sons of, the sons of God who lived by sight and not by faith. I know this is a crazy passage. It's hard to make sense of. But I hope answering those questions is helpful. My last question that I want to talk about is, you know, what does this mean for us today? You know, this seems, so, seems like a long time ago. How, how does this passage apply to our lives today? And there's, there's two primary ways that this passage applies to us. First, this passage encourages us to live by faith and not by sight. And it warns us against the danger of living our lives by sight instead of by faith. And we see this theme. I mean, we see that in Genesis 3, we see that Eve lived by sight and not by faith, and it brought great destruction. In Genesis 6, we see that the sons of God lived by sight and not by faith, and it brought great destruction. And it warns us, don't live by sight, live by faith. And another way to, to put this question is, and so the question is for us. The question that I want us to all walk away from today and consider is, what are the areas of your life that you are tempted to live by sight and not by faith? Maybe another way to ask that question is, in what ways do you functionally live like an atheist? What are the categories of your life? What are the areas of your life where you, f- where you might say, I'm a Christian and I believe in the God of the Bible, but, but you live your life in a way that shows that functionally you live like an atheist? What are the areas of your life where you functionally live like an atheist? That's, that's an important question this passage forces us to ask. Maybe to just help you think about this. We, we've, talk, we've talked so much about hope this morning. We've talked this morning already about how Jesus has risen and he's going to come back. In what ways do you live as if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead? Are there areas of your life in which you live like Jesus isn't actually coming back. Maybe another, another one, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus, he gives this call. He says, come to me all who are, heavy, who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Do you live your life in a way that reflects that you actually believe that? Are there areas of your life that show that you don't believe that, that you don't believe that if you come to Jesus, you'll find rest. Your soul is weary and heavy laden, that in him you can find rest. Or Matthew 6, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Does your life reflect that you believe that? That's living by faith and not by sight. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
But are there areas of your life that betray that? Are there areas of your life where you struggle to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? 1 Peter 5, it says, cast all all of your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Do you cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you? Or are there anxieties that you carry and functionally operate with those anxieties in such a way that you live like an atheist? Romans 12, it tells us to to sacrifice, to, to give ourselves as a living sacrifice. Romans 12 tells us that our lives are a living sacrifice to our Lord. That we were created to know Him, to trust Him, to worship Him, that our lives are about His glory. Are there ways in which you struggle to offer your life as a living sacrifice? Where are the places where that's difficult for you? Again, I'm just trying to give you some food for thought here. Trying to help us think through what are the ways in which I live by sight and not by faith? What are the ways in which I functionally live like an atheist? This passage, it it forces us to consider that question and it helps us see the danger of living by sight and not by faith. So that's one application, is that it encourages us to live by faith and not by sight. The other way this passage applies to us is it makes us really thankful for the cross. Really thankful for the cross. Because I've got to be honest, as I've thought about this passage all week, and I've thought about the questions that I just ask us to all consider, I, I see so many ways in, in which I live by sight and not by faith. There's so many areas of my life in which I struggle and kind of live functioning like an atheist, as if the God of the Bible isn't real and that Jesus isn't coming back. And this is true for all of us. We all struggle to live by faith and not by sight. And in this passage, we see the sons of God live by sight, not by faith, and there is a great judgment that comes. And honestly, I see myself in the sons of God. Because I, just like them, I struggle to live by faith and not by sight. I often live by sight and not by faith. And I see that it would be so just for God to judge me in the exact same way that he judged the sons of God. And so this passage, it makes us thankful for the cross. Because we struggle with the exact same thing that the sons of God struggled with. It makes us thankful for the cross because it helps us see that Jesus in complete agreement with the Father, chose to become a man and be flooded with judgment on the cross so that we don't have to be flooded by judgment. I I can know because of the cross that the judgment that the sons of God experienced in Genesis 6, I won't experience. And I won't experience because Jesus was flooded with that judgment in my place. So this passage makes us thankful for the cross. This passage, uh, in a strange roundabout way, gets us back to Advent. And it gets us back to hope. It gets us back to hope because we so relate to the sons of God. We struggle to live by faith just like the sons of God. And yet, if we are in Christ, 
we find grace and mercy just like Noah did. And that is good news. That is the good news of the gospel, and that is the good news of Advent. So let me pray for us.